Good morning, West Bowles. Today we conclude our series on spiritual disciplines, something we've called the deep end. Today's topic is the scriptures. If the prophet Isaiah lived among us today and saw our preoccupation with cell phones and TVs and computers, with twittering and googling and surfing, he would say to us what he said to the people of his own day. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Isaiah wasn't talking about cheeseburgers or tacos or even filet mignon. He was talking about spiritual food. He would slap us upside the head, verbally anyway, for wasting our time and energy on things that don't nourish our souls while we ignore the source of life, God's Word. Engaging the Word of God is fundamental to our spiritual health. What God has revealed to us about Himself, about life, is available to anybody who reads or even who listens. The Bible was not given as debate material for scholars. It's for anyone who reads, who takes it seriously, who reads it intelligently and carefully. We may not understand everything that we read in the Bible, at first especially, but as we grasp more and more, the Bible begins to change our lives. It promises to bring us wisdom and understanding, joy and insight, to name just a few things. There's this joke where two old geezers are arguing about what color the Bible should be. One guy insists it should be black. That's the traditional color of the Bible. The other guy says, no, it could be brown, like natural leather. And while they're in the middle of their dispute, a child comes along and says, the Bible should be red. Red, they ask? To which he replies, yes, red, R-E-A-D. We should read it so it should be red. The kid is right, of course. The Bible should be read. We've been encouraging ourselves all month to go into the deep end in spiritual practices. I can't think of anyone better to anchor this little relay than Pastor Todd as he talks to us this morning about one of his favorite subjects, the Bible. Cannonball! That ain't gonna happen. I'm not as crazy as Todd. But would you join me in a warm West Bowles welcome home, Todd, as he takes us one more time into the deep end. <laughs> Man, I saw it, of course, the early service too, and I was hoping the second time I saw it would change and Dave would actually jump in there. Thought maybe I have a second version or something. Well, good morning. You know you've been gone maybe a little too long when they need to introduce you again. So it's only been three weeks, but it does seem like a long time. I came into the parking lot this morning, saw the church again, and, uh, you know, honestly, I teared up a little bit because uh, I knew what was coming this morning to be able to share in the Bible with you all again. How have you been? Some are going along well. Are you hungry for the Word of God? Because it takes a hunger, you know. You remember when Vanderlaan was here, he talked about that word meditate. When he talked about meditate on the scriptures day and night, that word meditate in Hebrew is Hagah. How many remember Hagah? Say Hagah. Hagah is what that animal of prey like a cougar does when it takes down a deer and gets into that deer. That cougar Hagahs on that caribou. 
And we translate that into the very heady intellectual word, meditate. Isn't that fascinating? Hagah! Are you hungry for God's word? While, um, while I've been away, I've been reflecting along with you on the spiritual disciplines. Uh, many thanks to Don and Joy and Craig, who got the ball rolling wonderfully with prayer and hospitality and Sabbath or solitude. Uh, my assignment is, as Dave said, one of my favorites to talk about, and that's the Bible. And I'm so glad to talk about it. I'm going to break it into this week and next week just because I can. So we'll talk about the Bible a little bit more next week. But I found myself, after having stared at sun settings on the horizon of Lake Michigan for the past few weeks, um, God put it on my heart to lay a bit of a foundation, not only for the importance of the discipline of studying God's Word, but also spiritual disciplines as a whole. So I'm going to back up a bit, and like we do from time to time, or like I like to do from time to time, take a look at the forest again once in a while before we take a look at individual trees. And so I'd like to offer you one take on spiritual disciplines as a whole before we get into more of the meat, the food, the haggaiing of Scripture next week. Get a renewed perspective and and remind ourselves maybe, what's the point of these spiritual disciplines? You know, why, why are we even interested in practicing them? Like we need more things to feel guilty about that we're not doing, right? Or that we need more things to do. What, what is this spiritual discipline thing? Is it a tack-on uh, to something that I'm already doing? Is it this sort of archaic, traditional thing that really doesn't have a place what this strange spiritual discipline? Why spiritual disciplines? And to answer that question, we need to chat a little bit and lay a foundation and talk about something called the human condition. In a nutshell, a small nutshell, I'm sure you've noticed the human condition is pretty awful. Now, do I really need to make that case this morning? Does anyone need convincing? Just check the daily news. Human suffering and need is relentless and appalling in its size and scope around the world. And yes, even here in the world's richest and wealthiest and most prosperous nation by many, if not all accounts, the United States of America, and in some ways, Especially in America, the human condition is in deep, deep trouble. And, you know, people often put a positive or optimistic spin on the human condition. But, you know, no matter the spin on it, I suppose what it all boils down to, and try not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, human beings still die and suffer and hurt and we go hungry and we are lonely and we experience all sorts of similarly horrible things. Being a human being is rough. And on a, a macro or a community level, the world seems to run to us with Oh, the answer of politics or other social order changes, that will liberate humanity from its many bondages once and for all. 
This past few weeks while we were in Michigan, I have no doubt it was uh, any different here in Colorado given the time of year, but we saw lots of political signs and ads in, in the yards and on TV. They're back, right? And all promising, you know, the right politician, the correct program, the correct politics. Well, that's going to solve our problems finally once and for all. We'll alleviate this tough human condition. And on a micro or individual level, Western cultures at least, and, and many false religions too, they, they peddle an astounding array of various self-fulfillment techniques as the passage into the good life. The problem is, and the fact is, that since the beginning of the world, neither politics or social reform or any self-fulfillment-based recipe, none of them have succeeded in transforming that heart of darkness that lies deep inside every human being, including me. What Paul calls that sinful nature. And despite all the worldly efforts and all their spin or all their eternal optimism, there remains at epidemic levels depression and suicide and personal emptiness and escapism through drugs and alcohol and cultic accept, uh, uh, obsession, consumerism and sex and violence and All of it, it seems to me, combined with this profound inability for us to sustain truly deep and enduring and satisfying personal relationships. Despite every worldly effort, the human condition remains pretty awful. Enter the Word of God. Enter Christianity into the perplexing problem of the human condition. What is the Word of God? What do Christians, what does the church, what do the people of God have to offer the world as it continues its historical search for the solution, the liberation from bondage of the human condition? Well, the answer, of course, you know it, is Jesus. Jesus is the solution, the only ultimate and perfect and complete and lasting solution to that awful human condition. And he's not just the solution for one day in the future. He's the solution right now in the world today. And I know that's a big statement because you might be tempted to say something like, wait a minute, Pastor Todd, Jesus is the solution to the human condition right now? Well, that simply can't be true. Take a look around. All of those horrible things you mentioned in the world, that pervasive human suffering and need is is all around us, despite the cross and resurrection 2,000 years ago. Despite the church being around for 2,000 years and counting, all that junk, all that chaos in the world remains. And it remains in the lives of non-believers and believers alike. So how can you say that Jesus is the answer to the human condition right now when he so obviously isn't? Maybe you sat in the sun a little too long, Pastor Todd. 
Maybe I did. But you know what? I still believe that Jesus is the solution to the human condition right now in the world today. And one reason, at least, there's still so much pain and suffering in the world at epidemic levels, despite the cross, despite Pentecost, despite the growth of the church, still at epidemic levels all this suffering. One reason, at least, in my opinion, is because God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, choose to address those needs in the world through us, through the church, and frankly, my dear friends, beginning with me, We haven't been doing a very good job of it the past 2,000 years, in my opinion. I'm trying to answer the question of why spiritual disciplines. In a word, that answer is transformation. Say transformation. Transformation. Yeah, not transformers. I saw Ryan's son. He had a little transformer. But transformation. Say transformation. In three words, why spiritual disciplines? In three words, the answer is becoming like Christ. And spiritual disciplines are crucial toward that transformation, are becoming more and more Christ-like. It's my belief that if more people committed themselves, opened themselves to being more completely transformed into the image or likeness of Christ the human condition would dramatically improve around the world and even be cured, yes, right now. Think about it. If everyone, even if every Christian, beginning with me, I've been convicted this past vacation in this time of staring at horizons that this needs to start with me. I am so woefully a work in progress here. Think about it. If every Christian believer, if everyone in this room completely committed and submitted himself to God, if everyone here really did love their neighbor, love her neighbor as herself, think of what that would happen to human suffering and need, at least in this body and so on and so forth. But the human condition remains appalling, and human suffering and need is not gone. And I'm suggesting one reason, at least, and it's not the complete theological answer to all of it, but I'm I'm suggesting one reason, at least, that the human condition is pretty much as bad as it's ever been is largely because the people of God, beginning with me, we hedge the bet on this transformation into the likeness of Christ plan that God has for us in the church. And so God honors that choice as he does. Doesn't overwhelm our free will, our choice. He honors our choice to go partway, to compromise the call of Romans 12 to be transformed. And so we stay in bondage to sin, despite the complete freedom God offers in Christ, because we hedge the bet we don't quite let go of self. Or maybe it's because we just don't believe it's possible 
to be just like Jesus. Do you believe that's possible? Honestly. Do you believe it's possible that you can really be just like Jesus? Can ordinary individuals like you and me become, through grace, as love-filled, effective, and powerful community as Jesus and those original disciples? Do you believe that in Christ you actually can become like Jesus in character and in power and thus in and through us, the church, the people of God, have humanity finally realized its highest ideals of well-being and well-doing and solved the human condition? Do you believe that this is possible? Or do you, like me, balk at that possibility from time to time and hedge the bet and hold back. Let me tell you, the heart of the New Testament message is that we can be just like Jesus. And the heart is, we will. How? By doing one thing. We become like Jesus, the Bible says, by doing one thing. We become like him by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. Not just teaching what he taught. Not just saying what he said. And even not just doing what he's doing, but becoming who he was and is. You know, we say we have faith in Christ. Well, then we must believe that he knew how to live. And the Bible promises that we can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities he engaged in. Not as tack-ons, but by arranging our whole lives around them. Having them be who we are, those activities he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of the Father. And if he needed to, what about us? And what activities did Jesus practice? Well, now we've come full circles, full circle, my brothers and sisters. Back to where we started this morning, Jesus practiced things like solitude and silence and Sabbath and prayer and simple and sacrificial living and hospitality, especially for the down and out. He touched the world's untouchables. Jesus practiced intense study and meditation upon God's word and God's ways. And he practiced service to others. That's who he was and who he is. Jesus practiced such things as the spiritual disciplines we've been talking about. So why are we interested in spiritual disciplines? Because we're interested in being completely transformed, becoming like Jesus so that God could more fully implement his plan of bringing the kingdom of heaven that Jesus says is near to the world right now, to solving right now this appalling human condition of suffering and need. And the first step of all of that is our own transformation. And if you're like me, it's in this first step that we often fail because we don't believe we can do it. Or maybe because we don't 
fully realize that our transformation in being like Jesus takes intense time and all of our effort. We've bought the lie that all obedience or discipline is somehow works-based righteousness. Anytime someone mentions the need to obey or God's command, I feel that red flag in me as a Christian that grew up in the Western church. Maybe you do too. Oh, they're talking about obedience again and works. That must be one of those works-based righteousness people like those Pharisees. We don't want to be works-based righteousness people. It's all about grace. We don't have to obey to have God's favor. You almost can't say the word obey or discipline. At least I can't. And feel that tugging me that, well, that's a gospel other than grace. And we've lost, I've lost at least, if you're like me, you have too, that all-out passion to obey to the wall. Let me say it for the record, because I know as soon as obedience is out there, the record can be muddied. So everybody listening, online too, let me say it. We are saved by grace, and that works. God loves you and me to the wall, just because he does. (laughs) Praise God for that. There's no performance pressure to earn his love. And we don't have to merit our transformation into being like Jesus. But nevertheless, it takes great time and effort on our part. Bonhoeffer is famous for saying, grace is free. Grace is a free gift of God. It will only cost you your life. And giving anything less cheapens it. And I don't know, if you're like me, I tend to rationalize it away. Ah, it's works-based righteousness. Which I just sort of use as rationalization to kind of be lazy and kind of live life as I want. And I feel a little convicted, so I just try a little bit. And then, oh, that was tiring. Let's go back and doing what I want again. And it doesn't become who we are. We need to stop treating all obedience or cause to obedience as necessarily merit-based. We don't obey to earn anything. We obey because we love God and want to be like Jesus. If we do want to love God and be like Jesus, then we obey. Not every attempt at being obedient, at changing, at discipline is works-based righteousness. Not all obedience is a formula. Our obedience to God is not for merit. It's because we love God and want to be like Jesus. And this doesn't happen automatically or overnight because of that dark heart. It takes our time and our dedicated effort. I've been reading a fascinating book by Dallas Willard. I can't put it down. I started reading it after your deep-end journals that some of you have went to press for this series, so I didn't list it. 
But if you want a convicting read sometime, read The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. He just nails it, in my opinion. And he uses an illustration of a teenager who idolizes an outstanding baseball player. Here. Let me let Dallas tell it in the way that only he can. Think of certain young people who idolize an outstanding baseball player. They want nothing so much as to pitch or run or hit as well as their idol. So what do they do? You coaches, you know this, what they do. When they are playing in the baseball game, they all try and behave exactly as their favorite baseball star does. The star is well known for sliding headfirst into bases, so the teenagers do too. The star holds his bat above his head. Wiggles it around. So the teenagers do too. These young people try anything and everything their idol does, hoping to be like him. They buy the type of shoes the star wears, the same glove he uses, the same bat. Will they succeed in performing like the star, though? We all know the answer quite well. We know that they won't succeed if all they do is try to be like him in the game. No matter how gifted they may be in their own way, and we all understand why. The star performer himself didn't achieve his excellence by trying to behave in a certain way only during the game. Instead, he chose an overall life of preparation of mind and body, pouring all his energies into that total preparation to provide a foundation in the body's automatic responses and strength for his conscious efforts during the game. This is not a truth, Dr. Willard writes, to be set aside when we come to our relationship with God. We're saved by grace, of course, and by it alone, and not because we deserve it. That's the basis of God's acceptance of us. But grace does not mean that sufficient strength and insight will automatically be infused into our being in the moment of need. Abundant evidence for this claim is available precisely in the experience of any Christian. We only have to look at the facts. A baseball player who expects to excel in the game without adequate exercise of his body is no more ridiculous than the Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without the appropriate exercise in godly living. That is convicting stuff. Becoming like Jesus takes preparation, preparation that requires our time and effort. Some decades ago now, there appeared a very successful novel called In His Steps. I have no idea many of you have heard of it and read it. And in the book, a series of tragic events leads a minister in a very prosperous church to realize how unlike Christ his life had become. And so the minister leads his congregation in a vow not to do anything without first asking themselves the question, what would Jesus do in this case? And yes, the WWJD phenomenon was born. And while a good exercise, I think, even a great one, to consider what Jesus would do in a certain circumstance, I hope you all do this. Be careful because there is a a flaw That might appear in this kind of thinking or approach if you don't keep an eye on it. A kind of approach might lead us to believe that to follow Jesus simply means to try and behave as he did 
when he was on the spot, under pressure or persecution or in the spotlight, and not to realize and appreciate that when that what Jesus did in such cases was in large and essential measure the natural outflow of the life he lived when not on the spot. His preparation. The overall life he had adopted. The preparation he put in while growing up in Nazareth. Thirty years the perfect God-man prepared for his adult ministry. How much time and effort do we put into our preparation so we're ready for when we're on the spot? The fasting, the solitude, the study of God's Word. It was his life. And those things enabled Jesus as much as anything else to do what he did. And for us to do certainly what Jesus would do in a certain circumstance requires no less of us. In his book, The Road Less Traveled, psychiatrist M. Scott Peck observes the following. There are many people I know who possess a vision of personal evolution yet seem to lack the will for it. They want and they believe it is possible to skip over discipline, to find an easy shortcut to sainthood. And often they attempt to attain it simply by imitating the superficialities of saints, retiring to the desert or taking up carpentry. Some even believe that by such imitation they have really become saints and prophets and are unable to acknowledge that they are still children and face the painful fact that they must start at the beginning and go through the middle. I feel like Dr. Peck is talking about me. How about you? Becoming like Jesus takes great time and effort. It demands an all-encompassing life-change, lifestyle choice. We need to go all in. And yeah, you knew I was going to get there eventually. It's Shema, again. Can't get away from it. All your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your mind, all your all. Only the church were known more for that. I wonder what would happen to the human condition. As we sit in one of God's churches in the wealthiest nation in the world. Jesus practiced the disciplines to prepare. I guess he practiced to become like himself. I guess you could say. I don't know. I played with that a little bit, but I'll move on. It's, so do we want to be like him? If the answer is yes, then we should do what he did to prepare. When asking, what would Jesus do? When we're in the game, faced with the circumstance, when asking, what would Jesus do? Well, we would have to have done what he did. Prepare. Before we can do what he would do. Don't we? You see on the list 
I see on the screen a list of spiritual disciplines. Some people divide them into disciplines of abstinence and engagement. You'll find that list in Dr. Willard's book. It's as good a list as any. It's not exhaustive by any means, but he picks those disciplines that traditionally have been well-received and used over the ages by the saints, and beginning with Jesus. Look at the list. Ask yourself as I read them, can you see a lifestyle choice in these things? Solitude, silence, fasting, frugality, chastity, sexual purity, secrecy, and sacrifice, study, worship, celebration, service, prayer, fellowship, confession, and submission. It's who he was. Is it who we are? I needed that framework before we got to the individual discipline of a study or time in the Word. I've got time to introduce it this morning, and that's it. We'll pick up on it again next week. Study of the Word, universally held to be the primary discipline of engagement. Relationship with God, as with any person, requires a contribution from us, which will largely consist of study. As one author observes, mystics without study are only spiritual romantics who want relationship without effort. Bible study as a needed discipline is difficult to overstate. Of all the preparation Jesus did, none, in my opinion, come close. Maybe prayer. None top, at least, his study of the Bible, which is abundantly clear in his pervasive use of Scripture in his teaching as he engages in the life around him. It's always on his tongue. All historical evidence suggests that first century rabbis at least memorized the Bible. They knew it backwards and forwards in large part because they meditated on the text and prayed the text. Abraham Heschel says it as well as anyone. The Bible is mankind's greatest privilege. It is so far off and so direct in its demands and full of compassion in its understanding. No other book so loves and respects the life of man. No loftier songs about his misery and hope have ever been expressed. And nowhere has man's need for guidance and the certainty of his ultimate redemption been so keenly conceived. It has the words that startle the guilty and the promise that upholds the forlorn. And he who seeks a language in which to utter his deepest concern to pray will find it in the Bible. In the book recommendation I did list for you in your deep end journal, Scripture by Heart, Joshua Kang highlights the importance of memorizing Scripture as a foundational part of our becoming like Jesus. Because, well, Jesus memorized it all. And he also emphasizes the importance of meditating on Scripture, which is one reason why I chose to recommend the book to you. He writes, memorizing the word is like ingesting food while meditating is digesting the food. Isn't that good? Memorization and meditation go hand in hand. Really, 
If you meditate long enough on a passage, you'll end up memorizing it. If you want a one-word best memorization technique, meditate. You keep mulling that thing over long enough, if you take that kind of time, you'll get it down eventually. And remember, we're about being transformed, becoming like Christ, and and Jesus knew Scripture. It was always on his tongue. Every situation he faced in life was cast against God's word. He responds to the devil when tempted and pressed those 40 days in the wilderness, remember? His response is, he quotes Deuteronomy of all things. How many of you have tried that when tempted? Psalm 22 seems clearly on Jesus' lips while he is on the spot, on the spot, hanging on the cross. He was prepared in part for enduring even the cross because he memorized and meditated on Psalm 22. Isn't that remarkable? And there it is being wrung from him. I wonder in some vain attempt... Even as he's utterly left alone, as God turns his face from him and everybody runs, what has he got left? Well, he's got God's word in his heart and he's going to recite it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1, and so on. Read it sometime. Now, if you haven't yet done much with scripture memorization. Would you consider starting today? We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. But my recommendation to you is the same as Dr. Kang's in his book. Start with 15 minutes a day if you haven't started at all. Maybe get a book like his to begin with. But make a start. You know, for Bible memory, study of the Word, and every spiritual discipline, we just need to make a plan and make a start. One discouragement I had, and still have, when memorizing scripture is it bothers me that when I memorize something, the more I memorize, and once I get to about the 21st verse that I'm memorizing, you know those first two or three verses start to fall out of my mind? How many of you had that delightful experience? Like, oh. And so you just go, well, I guess I can't do it. And then you just pitch the whole thing. That's me. And then God gave me an experience once upon a time. In preparation for a trip that I went to, to teach with Ray Vanderlaan in Turkey, Ray said, hey, Todd, what I'd really, uh, I got this um, challenge for you. I said, great, Ray, what do you want me to do? He said, I'd like you to memorize Colossians. I said, yeah, no, really, what do you want me to do? You know? No, I'd like you to memorize Colossians. And then what we'll do at Colossa, because there's not much there, it's just a tell with, that hasn't been excavated. It's just, you'll come running up like you got the letter from Paul to the Colossians. And then you can go to, with the group and you can just recite Colossians by, by memory. It'll be really cool. And, and learn it well enough so when you do it, it's not just da 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 but you can speak it with, how would you, well, I can't say no to this. Like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And I walked out of the office, oh no, I've got to memorize Colossians. And it took me five months. But at the end of that five months period, I had Colossians down. And I could do it well. It's been about six years. I don't think I could recite for you any three verses together in Colossians on the spot right now. But let me tell you what happens. 
What happens when I'm especially pressed or in need or hurting? Guess which scriptures come to my mind? Colossians. When someone comes to me for advice and what does the Bible say about or I'm having this problem, and I reach, guess what scripture comes to my tongue? Perfectly. Colossians. Oh. It has redone my interpretation of what Jesus means when he promises us that when we need it, the Spirit will put his words in our mouth. It won't be like playing a baseball game like Derek Jeter if we just do it in the game and don't practice. But God will honor the time and effort that we put into memorizing it, even if those verses start to fall out of your memory. And boy, that encouraged me. There's someone uh, here, it's, it's her last day. And um, it's Lauren Benton. So I'd like Lauren to come on up just uh, because it's her last day so you can see her one more time and say goodbye. And she wanted, she asked if she could say some things to you. So come on up, Lauren. Um, the other reason why I want to have her up here is um, many of you know Lauren is a past student of mine. And it was Lauren who in large measure encouraged me and made me want to be like Jesus in the area of memorizing the text. This young woman can memorize the text, although maybe I pushed her first and then you pushed me back, right? Which is what good students will do. And uh, I know you have an example of a psalm in particular. So I asked her yesterday, I said, hey, will you tell a story about the blessing of memorizing the word, the spiritual discipline? And she said, I got, I got a dozen, she said. So no, I just need one because I'll probably be running long. See, I would write. <laughs> But um, I asked her to share, and the one she, are you going to share the same one that you did this morning? Yeah, I would love for you to. And she prayed a particular psalm and meditated on it and began to memorize it. And just listen to what happened when she did that. They set you up okay? Do you need a mic? You need a mic. This the hot one? Yes. Good morning. Hey, thanks so much for letting me speak a little bit this morning. Um, Like Todd said, yesterday he called me and said, hey, do you have a story? And I said, yes, absolutely. Um, But where kind of all this scripture memory all started was when he actually took me to Israel. And we had to go to the Temple Mount. Now, most of you may know that because the Temple Mount is owned by Muslim territory, um, the Bible is not allowed to be brought up there. And so when the Bible was taken taken from me, I got up there And kind of God's quiet whisper came to my ear, and he said, Lauren, if your Bible was taken away from you, how much of my word would be on your heart? Would you be able to remember my words? Would they come like that, or would you have to sit there and mull over and not remember anything? And in those moments, that hit me really hard, and I realized that I had to do something about this. So going into college, um, I realized that no longer would people be making, would I be in Todd's class, him making me memorize his verses every week and be quizzed on it. It was going to have to be something that I pursued, something that I chose to do. And so what I began to do is I took three months, and I went through devotions. And oftentimes when we go through devotions, we like to highlight something. And because we like it, or it reminds us of something, encourages us. 
Well, I wanted to turn those highlighting verses into something that was actually on my heart, something that I could remember, that I could say. So what I did is I actually went to Walmart, get them. I got a spiral-bound notebook, and I began to write down these verses. And like Todd said, um, there was a psalm, Psalm 37, 3 through 8, that I absolutely loved. The words were so powerful, and I knew that I wanted to have those. Um, And so let me tell you something, though. I wanted, when I started doing this, I said, God, I do not want these to be just words on a page. I want to say that I've actually lived them. I want to believe what you say, Father. So, you guys, when you begin to pray that prayer, it can be a little scary because sometimes those words are pretty powerful. But what ha- this is kind of what happened to me. I began my week, Psalm 37, 3 through 8. And it was my um, goal to take a small phrase every day and memorize it and throughout the week continue the passage. So it was Monday, and it was a crazy Monday. It was one of those days where um, friends were having kind of problems here and there. I was being tongued this way and this way, this way, between all these different stories. And believe it or not, the first um, phrase that I learned that day was trust in the Lord and do what is good. That was it. Do what is good. So I was like, all right, God. And those, that was kind of what was on my tongue the whole day. The next day, I was kind of woke up, and it was funny because I was like, why am I so anxious today? I was anxious about school. I had a lot of decisions to make. Um, I was in between applications of where to get involved at school. I was filling out applications for internships here and there and everywhere. I was off the crazy. I was like, God, I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? And it's funny because the verse I got that day was, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's it. Okay, so that day goes by. The next day, I get another one, and um, I was in macroeconomics class, and I was actually misrepresented in my group to my teacher. Um, And I was kind of angry about it, but there was not much I could do. And, you know, I was sitting there, and the first words that come to my brain was a phrase I was memorizing that day, and it was, um, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. And I was like, all right, you got this, God. You know, you know before anyone that I did what was right. So Thursday comes around, and again, it was one of those days where I was just asking God all day. I was like, God, 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 what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to be? Where do you want me this summer? Um, where should I go? I was just like crazy. I wasn't listening. I was just going, I was praying, 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 which isn't a bad thing. But my verse that day said, be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. It was in that day I realized I needed to stop talking and I just needed to listen. Well, Friday comes around And like many of you know, all of us have situations like this sometimes. When we have work, we have work situations where we don't always get along with everyone perfectly. There's people that sometimes irritate us. They may, everything they say, you're just like, please be quiet. You know, I'm being honest. There's just some people we have a hard time getting along with. But it was funny because, once again, that verse, the next part of that passage I got that day was, do not be agitated by the one who prospers in his own way, by the man who carries out evil plans. Those were the words on my lips that day, and it was like God saying directly to me, Lauren, do not be agitated. And finally, it's Saturday, and um, like all good Saturdays, you end up in the room a lot 
uh, I would do homework that particular day. I'm usually out and about, but it was one of those things that uh, I had a kind of a roommate situation, and it was, I was, honestly, I was just annoyed that day. Everything that came out of their mouth, I was like, please, stop talking, please. And um, once again, it was the last verse in that passage, and to me, it kind of is random in that passage, but it's refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, I have lived Psalm 37, and it has become more real to me. When you begin to live it, the words mean something to you, and you remember them at a completely different level. Um, and indeed, God's word again came true that it is indeed living. It is active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It brings truth to your life and the lives around you. It brings peace and it brings direction as to where you should go. So as we, we've been challenged the last few weeks of going to the deep end and going to the next level of our faith, I challenge you, begin to pray the prayer of God, let me live these scriptures. And I challenge you to start memorizing his word because crazy things happen. The words that you memorize not only bring healing to the souls around you as you speak them to other people, but it also is an encouragement to ears of others and even to your very own as you go out through day to day, kind of like what happened to me. But um, with this being my last Sunday, I would definitely like to just say a few things. And first of all, say thank you, you guys, so much for having me this summer. Um, this has been an incredible opportunity as I've kind of been able to participate in different community life events, such as the garage sale and the movie night. I've been able to do various projects around the church, just kind of the upkeep of the church, doing um, administration stuff in the office with Melanie and um, Dave. I've been able to work with the youth, the junior high, the high school. Got to do outdoor adventure camp at the beginning of the summer with Cassie Nason. Um, got to do some VBS stuff as well. And also do a little bit of speaking at the ladies' night a couple weeks ago. And um, I have learned so much. And after being exposed to the many facets of the church as an outsider, I want to tell you, you all are so blessed. I've been able to work with various people and staff. And I, want to hear, I am here to testify that each one of them are people of love, people of integrity, people of service, and people who are authentic from the inside out. They desire to see God's will carried out in this church, and they will go to far ends to actually do that. Um, so if you haven't had a chance, I beg you, please meet these people. Please get involved. You not only have something to give that this church needs that's individual and unique, but they also have something to give you and to bless you with. Um, I also want to say that I've had a huge chance to work in the youth department, and I want to say God is doing crazy things in that youth department, in the junior high and in the high school. God's Spirit truly is over the leaders and over the youth, and they have a craving and a desire to do God's will, to seek Him out. So I pray that you will continue to support them, to pray for them, to invest in them, because they are people of greatness, no doubt. Leaders of the next generation. They're incredible. And um, I... As I embark out, I'm leaving this Thursday to head back down to Florida, and um, I'm excited. I'm going to be the Student Connections Coordinator, and God's completely set up my internship this summer. I've learned so much that I can apply, uh, apply to that position. And um, please, I ask that you pray for me for wisdom, for discernment in the next last, last couple years of school, and also just um, that I'll be a leader of love and a leader of grace to the people 
as I go back there. So thank you so much, Mr. Todd. And I thank you guys so much. Thanks. Just a minute. When I said goodbye to her a couple of years ago from uh, the Front Range classroom, that was hard, and now i got to do that again. It was great having you back. I've missed you. Thanks for coming and inspiring me and all of us again with your light and your passion for God's Word to be more like Him. We'll be in touch. I love you, Lord. Go get him. Go get him. We have to go. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction? And uh, we'll continue this talk of the Bible uh, next week, Lord willing. Today's benediction comes from Psalm 1, which preoccupies itself with meditation on the Word. Here's God's words in the very first psalm, the very first verse that opens up the wisdom books in Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. How blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, West Bowles. Great to see you all again. We'll see you next week. God bless you all.